Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. Though it's come up with a few of my guests, I haven't really delved that much yet into how faith or religion intersects with ethics and politics yet in the show. So in light of some of the current events, I've been thinking more about you know, what is the role of faith in social justice and what is the role of churches and synagogues and mosques and other religious institutions in times of crisis more broadly. And should religious communities always be neutral or is there in fact sometimes an obligation to take a stand on issues of injustice? And at the same time, how can religious institutions do that but not themselves become overly politicized? So to explore those questions more, I'm joined in this episode by Andy Willis. He's the pastor of the English-speaking congregation of the ELCG in Geneva, Switzerland, where he's been based since 2014. Uh, Andy's initially from Minnesota, though, in the United States, and he's also lived and worked in Jerusalem, as well as in Olympia, Washington, also in the United States. Andy's an old friend, and he's someone who is always really thoughtful and really nuanced in how he speaks about religion and politics and social justice. So this was an interesting conversation for me, and I hope it will be for you, too. Andy Willis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Julie. Um, Andy, I just wanted to start by asking, how did you first decide to become a pastor? Right. Um, Yeah, big question. Uh, And I think, well, I guess maybe particularly with this line of work, people often imagine there's like a dramatic call story or like a moment when you knew this is what you always had to do or something like that. And um, it's not exactly that way for me. It's It was more of kind of a gradual and organic process and sort of, I don't know, I sort of think of it as like a braiding together of different interests and things that were going on in my life at the time. Um, and like one of those things is just a love of texts, I would say. And I, I, I come from a family of English majors and I, I was an English major and um, so sort of this idea of like poring over books and studying a text and expecting that there was something good to come from that was like kind of a natural thing for me and something I, I always liked. And sort of the image of a pastor is doing that on you know a regular basis as part of the job. It I guess that always appealed to me and it, it still does in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, that's that's that was sort of one of those one of those strands that was there yeah. for me in thinking about ministry. And um, an, another one of them was just just a love for community. And I think at that time in my life, kind of in these really formative years, I did have just some great experiences of community where you know there was a strong sense of belonging and a strong sense of this just making life so much richer to be doing it, you know, sort of in close relationship with a group of other people. And, you know, that, so like I spent some summers in college working at a, at a backpacking camp in South Central Montana. And I got to spend a semester traveling with a group of students when I was a college student. Um, and um, I got to work at a couple of different Christian retreat centers. And yeah, all of that just sort of, um, sort of built up in me the sense that, that community is one of those things that makes life so much better and so much richer. 
and I I was you know starting to see the work of ministry as as a lot about you know nurturing a particular community and helping it to thrive and yeah be a beautiful and lively place. Um, so so it was those two things, and I think around I mean it was around the same time too that this kind of strand of a concern for for justice. Um, really became more important for me. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very privileged and um, sort of isolated context in some ways. I, I grew up in a, um, you know, thoroughly middle-class white suburb of Minneapolis and um, really didn't have a lot of exposure to, I, I think, to, to issues of injustice or inequality in any very direct way. I mean, in, in books a little bit and things, but it was really pretty abstract for me. And I remember being in a in a college class and like being asked on the first day for everybody to go around and sort of name the greatest injustice they'd seen. And I remember that like really, I had to like dig around a bit. I, I felt like I just hadn't seen very much. And I, that's something that that was a big growing area for me. And uh, you know, I learned more in school, but then the sort of more formative experience around that for me was. Um, was spending two years in Jerusalem after college. I um, I applied with the Global Mission Office of of my church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and was sent to to Jerusalem for two years um, to work with the Lutheran Church in Jordan and the Holy Land. And this is this um, you know Palestinian Christian church with congregations in in Jerusalem and the West Bank and one in Jordan, and. Um, that was just a totally different experience for me to go and be sort of accompanying and listening to the experiences of this church that was sort of daily confronting this very real and and present injustice in their in their community and in their lives. And um, I was sort of seeing how for those people, faith was you know really a major resource in giving them a sense of hope and purpose and um, sort of fuel for their ongoing resistance to that. And that was that was a big um, a big deal for me at the time to see that and yeah, to, to be close to that at that time in my life. So I think kind of with all those things on the table, they just sort of braided themselves together a little bit into this idea of of, of pastoral ministry. I, I went to seminary soon after that time in Jerusalem. And they just kind of all seem to braid together into this particular um, calling. And it, it also helped that I had a lot of really good mentors and examples of people who I felt like were doing this work in really beautiful ways and, um, yeah, could give me a sense for what that might be like. Nice. I like that idea of the braid with text and community and justice. And we'll mm -hmm. touch on some of those things, I think, just as we keep talking. But yeah. Um, you know, I, I know those things brought you into this career path and job, but what does a pastor's job actually look like in the day-to-day -day that most people don't know or don't think about? Like, I know just from knowing you, like, you're always doing stuff that I, like, never knew pastors do. You know, I just thought you, like, wrote the sermon, showed up on Sunday, and, like, maybe did a wedding occasionally. So, like, what, what else do you, like, what else do pastors do that people don't really know about? Yeah. Um, well, I was a little bit late for our call because I was I was running up the stairs. We we got a, a new shipment of um, 
hand sanitizer dispensers and they're like total Playmobil pieces that you have to fit together. And it was like totally crazy to try to, we, we all got frustrated downstairs and I had to just leave the pieces on the floor and run up. So like <laughs> it's, it, um, there is that stuff that you mentioned, the, the like spending time in the study and, you know, working on sermons and, and doing the ceremonies. But um, a lot of it is this, yeah, sort of nitty gritty stuff of, um, uh, community life. And, um, I was thinking, uh, one of the things that, that we end up doing a lot as pastors is like moving tables around and setting up chairs and making coffee. Like there's a lot of just setting up space for encounters, you know, like that's kind of what, that's a lot of what I think pastoral ministry is about for me is sort of orchestrating spaces for people to encounter one another. Um, in the context of, of, of faith usually, but, but that's, you know, a lot of that happens around like collapsible tables and chairs and pots of coffee. And so there's like a lot of that that's, that's part of this job is um, those very just sort of elemental basic things of bringing people together. Um, yeah. And, and what is it like being a pastor for what I know is a very international and very multicultural congregation in a city like Geneva? It's, it's pretty wonderful. I mean, I, there are challenges to this particular kind of call, but I'm basically, I'm pretty conscious of how lucky I am to get to work in this kind of a setting in this kind of a congregation. Um, yeah, we're, we're a congregation of people from 40 to 50 countries, um, most of whom are not from Switzerland, most here working for a time with international organizations or ecumenical church organizations that are located in town. So it's um, it's a constantly changing group of people and much more diverse than most of the church contexts I've been a part of before. Um, I was thinking that, you know, like a, a really important story for our congregation or image for our congregation from the Bible is the is the Pentecost story from the Book of Acts. Um, that's you know this this um, this scene right at the beginning of that book where uh, it's 40 days after Easter and the disciples are all in Jerusalem and they've just kind of been hanging out like not really knowing what to do with themselves, just kind of waiting for whatever's next. And um, they're all together in a house and the way the the book tells it, the Holy Spirit falls and it's this kind of big you know, burst of light and sound, and it's sort of chaotic. And it's a festival time in Jerusalem. So there's all these people from all over the world in town and, um, you know, from faraway countries who've come just for this this one particular time in the year. And they, like, see this house basically blow up on the street and all this stuff happening. And they all kind of stop to listen. And um, they realize that it's not just, like, chaos happening in there, it actually, they can hear their own languages being spoken. And the person from Phrygia can hear Phrygian being spoken inside. And it's it it's this sense of, you know, this great multiplicity and diversity of languages there. And um, I think that story, I mean, it's really important for Christianity in general, of course, but it, it shows that there's this sort of built-in diversity to Christianity from the beginning. And this sense that I mean, that would be such a different story if what happened is that the spirit fell and they all started speaking Latin in in lockstep with one another. Um, 
the there's this idea that from the beginning there was room for like all these different ways of speaking and all these different ways of praying and the church hasn't always been very good about sort of honoring that character of of the tradition but it's right there like it's it's right there from the beginning and um you know, saying you don't all have to, to be the same to be part of this tradition or this community. And um, that's been really important for our congregation, just that that particular image of the church, I think. Um, so, yeah, we really kind of cherish this Pentecost story. And I, I think we're always looking for ways to lift up and honor the fact that we have so many different traditions and languages and cultures in our congregation and not sort of flatten that out or ignore it. So I was wondering then, like during a time like this year, during something like Corona and COVID, how does that change the nature of your work and that part, especially like how, how do you maintain a community and especially a faith community online um, or virtually? Like, how does that work? What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And I mean, we're all like figuring that out as we go there. There really was like, I feel no blueprint for this. I mean, I, like so many areas of life, we're, we're having to sort of rewrite a lot of things and figure out new ways forward. Um, I, you know, for, I think for most of us who, who get into to work with congregations, it's it's a love for that experience of community and that sense of people being together. And so figuring out what that looks like when we can't be together uh, is a challenge. Um, for me, it's a good exercise to remember like possibilities that we've discovered in this and some things that aren't all totally negative, even in this experience that that has been so negative for so many or so painful, painful for so many. Um, we, yeah, so as soon as the sort of restrictions on gathering went into place in Geneva in March, we quickly switched to um, online only for our worship services. That was new for us. We'd never live streamed anything, and you know those those early services look look that way. They're they're pretty ragged, but um, yeah, we made this effort to get the service out there in in a way that people could still access. Um, broad, we were broadcasting them on YouTube, and that has been an interesting experience. Um, kind of right from those first Sundays, we found that it wasn't just our local congregation here in Geneva who was tuning in, but a lot of former members and people connected more loosely to the congregation in other places who were looking for something familiar and something um, to ground them a little bit in this profoundly disorienting experience. So, um, you know, there's the chat function alongside a live YouTube video, and it was just sort of amazing at the beginning to see these folks chiming in from, you know, former members who we haven't seen in a long time chiming in from the UK or from Tanzania. And, you know, all of a sudden there they are. And it, we had this sense of connection to something much bigger than, than ourselves. And that was, you know, that was really gratifying in a lot of ways. Um, some members have kind of shared the, the information on how to access the services with their friends. And so we have people now who like regularly attend our online services who've never set foot in the building. And that's that's a totally new experience for us and really interesting to think about what that looks like going forward. I, I still don't quite know how to think about that. Um, yeah. yeah, all of that said, like, I know we're still feeling, I'm definitely still feeling like the limits of, of 
digital media in uh, when it comes to something like worship, maybe in particular, where, you know, you can go, like, anybody can go online and find a sermon out there to listen to as sort of a way to convey information or something. But the experience of of being in worship together is about, I think we're just recognizing again, it's about a lot more than just conveying information. Like it's about the sense of the person next to me who's who's singing really well and the person on my other side who doesn't sing well and we all just do it together and kind of carrying one another along with with songs and prayers and just the like presence of one another. And we can sort of cognitively know that's happening in online worship when you see people in the chat but I think it's there's just an element that you can't transmit that way. Um, there's I think there's still no real substitute for you know being there together, and so we're all we're all missing that. And I'm um, we we know we're doing the right thing in in staying distant from one another and the interest of keeping everybody safe. But um, we'll be we'll be glad when it's safe to to be together again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. You, again, we've been talking about this community piece for mm-hmm. a bit, but you mentioned the justice piece also. So alongside mm-hmm. COVID, I was wondering how much have you engaged with topics like Black Lives Matter, with the protests for racial equality, mm-hmm. um, potentially police reform? How, what, what did that issue or that movement mean for your congregation? Yeah, um, right. So... So Julie, you know that that I'm from I'm from Minneapolis, and um, you know grew up um, 30 minutes from where um, George Floyd was murdered, and um, this like this particular event and and everything that's come with it has has really hit close to home for me, and has just felt like a big reminder, I guess, of the the growth that I need to do in terms of my own, you know reckoning with privilege and my own complicity in systems that make this kind of thing possible and perpetuate this, um, perpetuate injustice for people of color. And it's reminded me of, you know, the kind of growing that I need to do in being a better advocate for change. Um, so like, I, I've definitely spoken about this from the pulpit in, in the last months. Um, I mean, in many ways, I feel kind of inadequate to do that. I feel like I have really more learning to do than anything. Um, and there's a lot of listening that I need to do. But like, my job every week requires that I get up and say something. And I, so I felt like I couldn't not say something about this. And the communities responded well to that. Um, I think, I mean, that that all goes with the caveat that, you know, most of my congregation is not American. And certainly not from Minneapolis. So it's, it isn't hitting, it doesn't hit close to home in exactly the same way for all of them. I I was trying to speak about it and, you know, initiate conversation about it in a way that sort of says this kind of reckoning that I have to do right now and that my, my community has to do. Um, Maybe that has parallels in your own context. Um, This is all going to look different for the members of my congregation who are from Kenya or, from Australia or um, India, but you know, I think I think the the movement for Black Lives has it's sort of this urgent call to to do that kind of examining of the systems that we participate in, and you know, thinking critically about who's benefiting from them, 
um, who's who's being harmed by them and where am I in all of that? And um, so, yeah, we've been, uh, it, I guess the hope has been that we, we are thinking and talking about that as a community. Um, all of it, of course, is happening while we're still distant from one another. So I feel like it's not maybe the level of conversation and reflection together that I would hope for. But but we did have a, a, a march um, uh, organized by Black Lives Matter here in Geneva, and, and a number of congregation members were part of that. Um, so we we have been, I think, connecting to to the movement in in a, a variety of ways. And you've talked about you know reflecting and reckoning, and I know you gave a sermon on more of the traditional meaning of the word apocalypse, which I think me and I assume most people you kind of think of as, as end of the world, but you had a way of explaining that it's really, really was about kind of the sense of revealing or uncovering. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to how you see that manifesting today, either in terms of Black Lives Matter or Corona or both, and um, maybe just to, to share a little bit more about that. So there's this type of literature in the Bible that we, we talk about as apocalyptic and um, yeah, I think in popular imagination, even for a lot of people who are church going, um, that word just kind of brings up these images of, you know, yeah, end of the world, like everything falling apart, these really horrific images and stories. Um, and there are like, to be fair, there are elements of that in these books in the Bible, but it's not really what the word means. Um, as you said, like apocalypse really refers to um, an uncovering or a revealing sort of like a pulling back of the curtain to see what's back there. And um, this kind of literature in, in biblical times, it tends to show up um, when a community is undergoing something really awful, um, often an experience of you know, really severe persecution or oppression. Um, and an apocalyptic book or piece of writing sort of means to pull back the veil and say like, I know it looks like the suffering you're going through is going to last forever and i know it looks like the empire that's oppressing you is the strongest thing around um but but you know really the empire is doomed to fail and the power of god is greater and you need to take heart like that's kind of what this sort of literature in the bible more means to do so um in the sermon when i was talking about this uh i was yeah speaking about us as being in a certain kind of apocalyptic moment right now um different from those biblical ones, of course, but again, like a moment when there's an opportunity to kind of look behind a veil that that maybe blinds us a lot of the time. Um, the real impetus for that sermon at the time was, was you know, very immediate news in Geneva. Um, sort of as soon as the city went into lockdown mode here, um, there were suddenly thousands of people in really desperate situations in town. Um, you know, not even with enough money for for food and basic hygiene items. And these these were largely people from other countries who were here working in various domestic jobs, like in childcare or cleaning homes. And um, the the need became apparent pretty quickly. And several organizations banded together with the city and food distribution started taking place on Saturdays at the hockey arena in town. And it was like this massive gathering of people. I mean, they, we, we'd see these pictures suddenly in the international news of, you know, a line, thousands of people long snaking around the, the hockey arena. And um, 
they're all you know out in the rain on an April morning here in the cold, and they're waiting for a twenty franc bag of groceries. And you know, it was sort of this really eye-opening for a lot of us to say like, whoa, really, this is Geneva. Like, this is one of the the wealthiest cities in Europe. It's you know, uh, it, I think it was shocking to see just that magnitude of really desperate need and how precariously a lot of people really are living here. Um, so that was kind of the apocalypse that I was speaking about there that's, you know, <clears throat> very much tied to the experience of the pandemic. Um, but I think there are a lot of other kinds of revealings that that we could imagine out of this time or that we could could glimpse. I mean, just seeing again, like how interconnected we really all are or, or seeing, you know, um, how, just how much we depend on workers who are poorly paid and undervalued in society. Like there's, there are these things that we, we are often maybe willfully blind to and, and here we see it in a different way. I think around um, at this particular moment as well, I mean, there, there really is, the opportunity for a sort of apocalyptic moment for for white people <clears throat> around racial injustice and just seeing something that's that's always been there but but it's been brought out into the open maybe in a way that that it often hasn't in life and i think part of what i was trying to say with that sermon and and what i think is there in this tradition of apocalyptic literature is like the point of an apocalypse is to let it affect you to to not ignore this glimpse behind the curtain and pretend you didn't see it and try to get back to things how they always were, but to let that experience do something to you and that that glimpse of a deeper reality allow it to affect the way you you act and the way you envision the future. So, yeah, it's pretty. Th these are unsettling things to go through, but they're profoundly important and things we can't ignore. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. In, in terms of the impact, then how, like, how would you see the role of, say, the church in times of crisis? Like when you see things like this, when you grapple with it, discuss it, then what, how, how do you see that role of the church or I guess maybe faith more broadly, but... Mm -hmm. um, sure. Yeah, um, I think I think in times of crisis. Um, well, let me start this way. Maybe I think for some in in pastor circles, and I can definitely say this for me. We've sometimes felt in a time like this that um, we need to come up with something like really new and exciting to say, or just that perfectly encapsulates the moment in a new way. And maybe there's you know, moments where that comes or, you know, maybe there's room for that kind of inspiration to hit once in a while. But I think, I think more often, I'm really speaking specifically for, for a church right now. I, I think in a time of crisis like this, there are, there are really sort of foundational core beliefs and practices in a faith tradition that I think we just need to remind people of and help people access in these times. Um, you know, there, there are these just sort of bedrock important 
foundational things right there in the tradition that that are kind of waiting to be accessed. And, you know, I'm thinking of things like, you know, love your neighbor and treat the stranger as a guest, as as sacred. Um, you know, take time to rest in prayer. Um, you know, practice being grateful. Um, be open to being challenged and to being made uncomfortable. Um, you know, continue to seek justice. Remember that the love of God is greater than anything else that would try to separate us. Um, you know, our, these like these faith traditions have been around a long time, and they've sustained and empowered people through periods of you know crisis and change and growth before. And I, I think they're still there, you know, because they're they're sturdy and they're they're deeply rooted and. I think what what a faith leader or a church, you know, basically needs to do in these times is help people access those really profound resources that are there in the tradition that we might, you know, in the in the panic or in the um, anxiety of a moment, kind of forget about or lose sight of. Um, and part of that is is you know just reminding us that there are there are bigger things to be concerned about than um, than just the the present anxious moment I personally am going through. Um, so I think we're like, I think we've been trying to help people connect to those sorts of like bedrock foundational truths and practices. And to remember again, that we're like, we're still who we are, even when we're separated like this, we're still people who are, um, you know, who are held in love and who um, have a calling and who are still, you know, part of one another, even if we're not together in the same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested in how you managed to map some of those kind of bedrock traditional, um, you know, tenets on to present day challenges mm-hmm. in a way that appeals broadly. So I guess I would, to put it more just directly, I would think it would be really hard to balance like politics, so to speak, and faith as a pastor. Like I think when we frame politics in more the context of social justice, that makes a lot of sense for a lot of churches anyway. But in other times when it is more on the politics side of that, um, I'm curious as to how you think faith communities should engage with that? Like as, as one could say, politics themselves are becoming more defined by morality or a sense of moral identity. Like, is there an obligation to address that more in faith communities? Or is there an obligation for faith communities and churches to err on the side of, say, neutrality or something like that? Yeah. Um, well, just that word neutrality or being neutral, I, I mean, I guess I, you know, like more and more, um, have, have the conviction that there's not really, I don't even know what a neutral space is when it comes to church. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I think if a church isn't making some effort to speak about injustice in the world and to pay attention to it, um, you know, I, I think it's just pretty clearly siding with the the privileged and powerful in its own context. And 
like that's that's really problematic for churches, especially I think because that's it's never where Jesus situated himself. And um, I, I, I guess, yeah, how to think about this? Um, so I um, I read a really beautiful article um, a couple months ago by um, Willie James Jennings, who's a um, he's an African American um, theologian and and scholar of religion teaching at Yale Divinity School. And um, he talked about growing up in um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, and sort of mid-size Midwest American city. I think he would have been growing up in like the 60s or 70s. And he says that from like a very young age, he knew that if he, you know, left the, the black section of town on his bike and crossed into the white section, he knew that he would be you know, followed by law enforcement and um, be subject to racial slurs. Like it was just part of the sort of geography of of race in his community. And he he said he was also aware from being really young that there were you know churches on practically every corner in in those sections of the the city that he didn't feel safe in. And he just sort of intuited that these churches were part of. I think he said they were the glue that held the racial geography in place, something like that, and and knew that. And um, I don't know if this is to your question exactly, Julian, you can push a different direction if you want, but I, I just, um, I've been thinking about that and taking that really seriously because I think, you know, if, if church is a place where we claim I, th- I think all Christians would say this, church is a place where we claim to tell kind of the foundational story for the lives of, of Christians, like the story that we make sense of our own stories with. And, you know, we talk about what we think is most important in life and what we think has, you know, our highest allegiance. And if in that kind of a space, you never talk about issues of injustice and you never talk about abuses of power, um, I mean, a church like that is basically blessing the way things are and sort of adding this divine seal of approval to it. And that's like super dangerous stuff. Um, I mean, we, I think we all know that that it's, that's like always a danger of religion in privileged communities, that it's essentially just blessing the way things are. And um, I think, you know, particularly those of us who've, who've grown up in privileged contexts and served in, you know, communities with a lot of privilege, um, we have to really be aware of this and be thinking carefully about that these days. Um, I think, I guess I think what we're called to do more than anything as, as churches is to like really pay attention. And that's, you know, it's paying attention to our own tradition and the resources that are there, like paying attention to these values and teachings that are, I think, the center of, of what Jesus was about around, you know, inclusion and mercy and welcoming the stranger and loving enemies and lifting up the poor and um, sort of at the same time paying attention to where those values kind of bump up against the world as it really is around us and where we see, you know, those values really far from being realized or lived out. And I guess, I think if you're doing that kind of real paying attention, um, both to, to the sort of depth of the tradition and to the world around you, like that can't help but have political ramifications 
um, you know, you don't want it to be an easy identification just with one party or one um, one ideology exactly. But but I think if you're doing that work well um, of paying attention, it's gonna lead to you know a desire to change things, and it's gonna lead to advocacy and um, to taking a stand on some things. So um, I feel like this is hard work and. And I feel like it always has to be done really humbly in the context of faith, because this is there's there's just a lot of pitfalls and dangers, I think. But if the church doesn't do it, I think we're really um, we end up in really dangerous territory and really, um, yeah, harmful place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I you know I hear you saying just really the centrality of social justice in mm-hmm. the church and in the church's mission. But I'm curious how. How you see that playing out, especially in the United States context, where I think me and many others would maybe see that even Christianity itself has been quite politicized. And usually when religion or Christianity is talked about in the context of politics, it's in regard to the religious right or Christian conservatives and um, maybe those who move in different spaces from the more social justice traditions that that your church emphasizes. So I was just wondering how you balance that, and is there maybe some room for um, maybe a bit more crossover conversation there than than we sometimes assume? Yeah, man. I mean, I've I'm speaking a bit um, with with quite a bit of distance from that context these days. Um, that I've I've been in Geneva now for um, yeah more than six years and I feel like the climate in the U.S. probably has shifted around some of these things even in the time I've been away. Um, I guess I think um, <clears throat> that in general, paying attention. I, I know this is going to sound simplistic, but I think maybe it starts in a place like this that um, you know paying attention to Jesus and to what what he said and taught and did, um, I think that has the possibility to keep bringing us back to common ground. Um, you know, I, I know, for example, there are plenty of um, groups that claim church affiliation that take really hardline stances on immigration or on refugees, for example. Um, I guess maybe it's naive of me, but I, I tend to think that if if we were as churches to come back to Jesus's teachings on this and his own example, um, I would like to think we've got to be able to find some common ground here because there is, I don't know how you make a good Christian argument against welcoming the stranger or against making room for people who are in a desperate situation and having to flee their homes. Um, I think, you know, coming back, that is, you know, one of the one of the just most basic tools we have as a faith tradition is our, our sacred texts. And, you know, if we start from places of religious right, religious progressives, whatever it is, I think starting with those labels, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna mirror the divisions in society for sure. Um, I think if we if we can find ways to come back to you know um, 
some of the things that we that we share and listen carefully to the to the kind of um, ethic that's lifted up there, the kind of concerns that are lifted up there, I would like to think we still have the possibility to find common ground. But like I say, I've been outside the, the American context for a bit and it that even getting people around tables these days can be hard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, one other question I had for those who aren't in a faith tradition yeah. or part of a church, and we've you know talked before how you know, many people now are either um, have either been raised secular or have have left um, religious traditions, mm-hmm. and some would say that some of our political movements right now are maybe becoming more of the source for um, for people to kind of locate their morality. And so mm. I was wondering if you see that happening, like do you see political movements perhaps becoming the place where people look for moral clarity or maybe starting to suffuse politics more with like moral righteousness and like do you do you see that happening and if so do you see that as a as a good thing or a not so good thing wow what an interesting question um just gonna pause for a second julie yeah of course (laughs) sorry i didn't give you that one i don't think that's okay it's totally okay um yeah, I'm just trying to get my thoughts in order for a second. That's, um, yeah. Is that is that something you've seen, um, like, um, is that a trend you've seen kind of studied or um, spoken about a bit these days? I mean, that, that sort of um, new prominence or role given to, to political movements in terms of belonging and meaning making and all of that? A bit, and I, I've seen it from from kind of both sides, and 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 often, often from a more critical um, view of, say, the left or more progressive movements. That um, you know, even someone using the language of of reckoning, of um, kind of the way that people are coming around together around certain causes, as maybe trying to you know, subconsciously like fill some of those gaps from religion or mm. the kind of kind of wanting that yeah that sense of kind of moral righteousness on on certain issues and I think one can make an argument the other way too that that can maybe be a, a positive um you know way that people are looking for something bigger than themselves and they do want to do good and be part of something good kind of everything that you said they want um they want that sense of community they want that sense of justice and just because they're not locating it around mm-hmm. um you know a religious or faith community there's something that people are still striving for for that so i i think there's room to look at that through a critical lens as well as a perhaps optimistic lens and i was just wondering if that's something that that you've grappled with. I mean, I know you're usually speaking to people who are in those communities, so it's, um, but I'm, I'm just, I've been trying to think about this a bit more myself and see if it, this is something that I, um, that I agree with or not. Yeah, that's, thank you, Julie. That's, I, I find that really, um, really helpful. And I think, um, I think what you say, I could imagine, I, I could see space on both sides of that, um, you know, space where there's, there's a possibility to find meaning in being part of um, 
you know, real and, and necessary change right now. I mean, that's, um, I think at its best, you know, um, religion has, uh, should offer people that experience as well. I mean, being part of the, I mean, the, the foundational stories, uh, you know, go back to Jesus calling people to leave their nets by the shore and, and follow, you know, it's, there's, there's a real experience of joining something, of joining a, um, a movement, uh, you know, a, um, a, a group of people that are seeking to do something meaningful and, and beautiful in the world. And, um, uh, yeah, I can imagine that's, that's like a longing that, that probably many of us have and whether we're in churches or not, um, you know, they're, uh, finding a way to belong to something like that is a positive thing. Um, I could certainly see that. Um, yeah, no, it's just, it's been something that I've been trying to think about more. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I would, I'm thinking of it from the church side, you know, that there's, there's room there for the church to hear, um, I think a, a, a word of critique that sometimes I think people have ended up not finding space in the church or not finding, um, a lot of life in the church because it's, it's ended up feeling like a place for people to hang out and be comfortable or, to, um, you know, just to kind of bless things the way they are. And, um, I mean, I, as, as you, as you know, I, I don't think that's what church ultimately should be. And there's, there's room for us to hear, um, you know, the, the kind of deeper longing that, that I think people have to be part of something meaningful and moving and, um, alive and, and, you know, seeking a different way to, to, to envision the future. Yeah. Um, is there anything on which your thinking has changed since you've been involved with the church and doing this kind of work? Something that maybe you you know believed when you first started that now you don't, or vice versa? Hmm. I mean, I think um, I think that idea of a more neutral space was something that I. I could find ways to connect to when I was first starting out that, that I, um, I mean, I still have this, this hope that, that in a church I serve, there would be room for people from diverse, you know, political orientations and, um, things like that. Um, but I think I, I really have grown in my conviction that you can't, um, you can't leave, um, concerns out of a religious space just because you're afraid they might be controversial or divisive for people. I think we have to be willing to talk about hard things and, and sometimes to, you know, really take action and, and make a, um, and, and really do something. And that won't, that won't please everybody. That won't always hold the whole group together through everything. But I think the stakes are too high these days to, to, um, to sort of put um, the, you know, to, to sort of lift up um, a, a lack of conflict or, a, you know, um, um, blah, 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 tongue yeah. tied there. Um, <laughs> to, to sort of put, yeah, the, the, um, the, the comfort of the community up above the need to actually take a stand at times. So I am, um, 
I think I've I've grown in my convictions about that, and and maybe in my comfort with, you know, occasionally the church just needing to, to finally commit to taking a stand on things. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something that I think, you know, extends to a lot of different sectors and even just people in their day to day life with trying to balance that sense of of providing a space of comfort and taking a stand when things get to a, a tipping point and, and, and require a response. So it's, um, again, it's just fascinating to me how you've been able to navigate that in the faith space in particular. Mm. Um, Andy, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we um, start closing things out? I don't think so. No, thank you for, these have been great questions and, and um, yeah, fun to have this, this space to, to think together. Well, I'll just close then. I usually ask for a book recommendation at the end, and I know you're also a music and poetry enthusiast. So um, just any recommendations you would have for for me or for other listeners? Sure. Okay. So um, for a book, um, the one that uh, that first came to mind that I've, I've read recently um, is uh, Mitri Rahib's uh, latest book, which is called Face in the Faith of Empire. No. Faith in the Face of Empire. Um, and uh, Mitri Rahib is a Palestinian uh, Christian. For many years, he was um, pastor of Christmas Lutheran Church in, in Bethlehem. And, um, uh, you know, in this book, he's, he's trying to look um, particularly at resources he finds in the Bible as a Palestinian Christian, sort of for faithful and visionary resistance and um, I just found it a really lively and in many ways timely book that, that could be transferred to a lot of other contexts too. Great. And um, I, I can't not say something about an album. So um, if I were going to recommend an album right now, I, Julie, do you know the um, Songs of Our Native Daughters? Uh, it was just recommended to me yesterday. So. Yeah. Okay. So this is a, um, a collaboration project among four um, banjo players, all of whom are um, women of color, including um, Rihanna Giddens and Layla McCalla. And um, the, yeah, the material is mostly original, but it's drawing deeply in lots of historical sources and sort of reimagining old stories, um, some of them from the, the period of slavery in the U.S., um, from the perspectives of Black women and um yeah, these are the songs are just strong and profound, and um, some of them are really beautiful. Uh, it's like a really rewarding album. So, and it's songs of our native daughters. That's it. Okay, great. I will link to those in the show notes. Then I, you don't usually steer me wrong with music recommendations, Andy. <laughs> um, well, Andy, thank you so much for this conversation, and um, thank you for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. Thanks so much, Julie. My pleasure. Thank you once again to today's guest, Andy Willis, and thank you all of you for listening. You've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. Original music is by Kevin McLeod. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. And stay well, and please join us next time.